A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Mandy El who makes paintings, sculptures, installations, videos and performances that assemble disparate materials to explore the human body and mind within diverse social, cultural and political contexts. Moving freely and intuitively across disciplines and media, she creates arresting correspondences between image and text, between the natural and the artificial, and between the senses and the intellect. Mandy was born in Selangor in Malaysia and now lives in London, where she received a BA in Fine Art from the University of Westminster in 2007, followed by an MA in Painting from the Royal College of Art in 2009. Her earliest notable series, which she continues to develop today, is called Windows. It consists of drawings made with a single material, blue ink. Mandy slowly builds intricate patterns, often using short and repetitive marks, interrupted by forms that evoke knots in wood or biological tissue and voids. Within these proliferating patterns are often isolated words or messages. Windows is actually her most atypical series in its materiality, but it relates closely to other bodies of work in its intensity, its interest in the relationship between fragments and wholeness, and its ability to produce multiple potential meanings. Another early and ongoing series is The Net Grids, which she began in the early 2010s. In these paintings, disparate collage material, including newsprint, advertisements, brand logos, and illustrations from scientific books, is unified by a hand-painted grid. Of course, the grid is a key motif in modernism and abstraction, but by bringing this structural element together with the loaded content of the collage material and by painting it unevenly by hand, Mandy casts doubt on its authority. The use of the grid over assembled elements is another example of that balance between parts and the whole that preoccupies Mandy, whether within a painting or in the construction of installations formed from multiple works. Increasingly, she's created environments which unite her paintings and sculptures, extending her materials onto the floor and walls. These, in turn, become stages for performances in which she, with various collaborators, further mines her enduring themes and concerns. Although Mandy's various groups of work overlap, they have distinct properties. The piece paintings, for instance, are looser than the neck grids, often including silk-screened imagery, less intensely collage material and more open gestural marks. Her white grounds paintings might evoke spareness in their title, but are in fact busily packed with imagery and mark-making. In them, she explores the meanings of the word ground as the tabula rasa of the painting process, as the space beneath our feet, and as landscape, with all the geopolitical and social complexities that engenders, especially when, like Mandy, your heritage is part Palestinian. And her biography is crucial to everything she does. That Palestinian background's reflected in numerous formal devices and motifs. Her interest in medicine and medical imagery relates in part to her father's chronic illness and her mother's job as a midwife. She includes her father's beautiful Arabic calligraphy in some pieces and his amateur radio broadcasts in others. Her mother's experience on a Malaysian rubber plantation is one of the reasons she uses latex as a material. And her own body and psychology are a constant reference. Her performance, Akathesia, is now 
named after a neurological condition from which she suffers, and in it you hear intimate recordings of her own voice. There's a sense in which, whatever the precise subject of each piece might be, it's underpinned by a fundamental psychological and bodily expression. This is clear in her table vitrines, sculptures that simultaneously evoke a mortuary slab and a museum display case. The chance encounters of the items in the vitrines, from drawings and paintings to handmade abstract but corporeal sculptures and found objects and texts, prompt intriguing questions about selection and categorization and create myriad potential meanings. They also ponder what constitutes an identity or a self and are inevitably metaphors for the human anatomy. And it's this with which I began our conversation. Mandy's discussed the canvas as a kind of skin and used the term suturing to describe the act of collaging her materials. So has she always seen the surface, structure and space of her work as a kind of body? Yeah, I think so. Even before there was any practice to speak of, this way, like you can see in the studio, everything is like every surface is covered. So it's more like a kind of flayed body and it's like an enveloping like surface. And I think it's something to do with like being on the spectrum, this continuousness. So I don't feel any kind of like break in my reality So like switching realities is difficult, getting in the shower, doing these things like context, social context. So it's kind of like a way of like, even when I was a kid, like my mum would always tell me off, like I'd spread all my shit everywhere. It's just like claiming territory and like wanting a continuous psychical reality to just be as wide as possible. So um, even when I take a work down from the wall, it would give me anxiety. I, I can't bear the white space, so I'd have to cover up everything or something. Yeah, it's really palpable being in the studio just how much every single nook, cranny is seemingly filled with stuff. Yeah. And tell me about this spread, because I, you used a really, really nice term, which is that the work was like gases filling up a space. Mm. It's almost anti-composition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that. Like, I used to admire the artists or painters when I was in school because they would somehow have this intuition of how to deal with composition, where goes where, and, and the hierarchy of, of how to put things in certain places. But... For me, if I can just fill up a space, then I don't need to think. And if I don't need to think, then it's more my unconscious working. And it's just like more about movement and like unconsciousness, let's say. Yeah. And of course, the unconscious, unconsciousness is crucial to you. The idea of psychoanalysis and ideas from psychology. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that there's an interesting balance in the work between the physical reality and an internal reality. Mm-hmm. Your new show is called Interiors, and I'm sure that that's both a physical reference and a mental reference, if you like. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I was really thinking a lot about how to deal with the space in the gallery, which is actually Tadeus Ropak's home. And it's like very different from other galleries. It's very beautiful, ornate kind of historical building. I think a priest used to own marble floors. There's no way you could compete or override that. So dealing with different realities and what that meant so literally like interiors in the kind of end supplements you know luxury interiors and then thinking about interiority which is something that the work is always looking at psychical interior realities and how blurring these kind of dual realities together because I I did feel like this kind of um, tension with that when I kind of started doing well and what that meant to sell and what that meant for my interior reality and how I could like deal with that cut or disjunction You mean between producing a kind of object that then becomes for sale Mm -hmm. as opposed to exploring psychic Mm -hmm. states, etc.? That and how this thing comes from here inside and then it goes out in like this 
other space that I'm completely alienated by. Right. That's really fascinating because, of course, one of the things about your work, and you've used this term, is, is the abjection. That's to say it operates in a space which triggers all sorts of bodily and psychical kind of reactions in the viewer as well as within the work itself. Do you test that in a way? Do you want to push that reality? Do you want to make that abjection, make people a bit uncomfortable when they view the work? Yeah, I mean, it's not like in a gratuitous way. It's more to deal with that tension that it can occupy both spaces, both spaces being something that is aesthetically beautiful and transcendent, but still contains the reality of that objection. And I think that resonant space is what every artist is going for, like um, attention, so it's never sitting still. And then when it comes to the different forms of work, it seems to me that they perform different bodily operations, if you like. The, the table works or vitrines, you've, you've pointed out that the objects are almost like organs. Yeah. And then the paintings are much more like skin. Yeah. Tell me more about how you make those kind of category decisions, if you like. But also, do they overlap to a certain degree? They totally overlap. So I also have like these works, these piece paintings, and they can function like the tables because they're, they're more figurative, but they're kind of disembodied organs, like made together in this composition but it's actually just like wanting to give structure to the spread so I I hoard a lot of stuff I hoard a lot of like paper ephemera and object stuff so the tables are a way to deal with that and create bodies in the table and the paintings are like a way to hold that and create a body on a surface so it's it's really practical everything's really practical to stop this too muchness of my collecting and you alluded to the piece paintings there. You have very defined series. Yeah, Again, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in the porosity or hermeticness mm. of those series. To what extent does it help to categorise in a way as a sort of starting structure or do you see them completely sealed within the series and not being more porous and allowing each other to kind of... A more osmotic kind of relationship, if you like. I think with time it becomes osmotic, but it starts off very rigid because I need um, strict rules... You know, I won't know when the studio session ends, for example. If I'm drinking and I'm not sleeping for two days, that's going to cause problems. So I need, like, those rules for my mental health. So, like, to kind of, like, say what's this and what's that. Otherwise, everything becomes everything and then we have, like, some trouble. Do you know what I mean? So the osmosis of it would happen over time where I would see that, you know, this might bleed into an operations work, this might bleed into a blessings work because they have crossovers. But I guess... That kind of rigidity, its absurdity is laid bare because the taxonomy of anything is kind of absurd anyway. And I'm, I'm looking a lot with those kind of structures in, in culture anyway. The net grids are obviously a particular body of work. In a way, the longest yeah. body of work, I guess, 2013 was your first work in that series. It seems to me that there's a really important point you're making, which is, of course, you're engaging with the history of abstraction and with the grid of modernism and so on. But it's almost like you're claiming that abstraction is impossible because your work obviously has a distinct relationship with content and with very subjective content in all sorts of ways. Would you say that that's a contention of the work, the impossibility of abstraction to a degree? I do think abstraction exists, but it's not a fixed state. So, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. It's even the Col Andre squares, you know, um, I think Ava Hess was talking about how that related to the camps for her. Because you're a body, in this body, there's going to be context. You cannot remove yourself from a lived history. In that sense, it's impossible. But in the kind of aesthetic feeling of beholding something, there is abstraction, like in any experience you have. 
Yeah, and do you find that you want to also, as well as dealing with abjection, provoke pleasure in the work? Because it seems to me that I, I really enjoy the surfaces of your work. You know, you talk about things like suturing and, you know, there's lots of surgical terms and so on. So we're aware that we're and bruising. and not, mm. So we're aware of a certain violence in the work, but there's also a certain beauty, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, and I think I want people to feel that kind of sliding in and out. Of, the, of those experiences of like, you know, recoiling and, and wanting to lean in. And so I always bring out my my surgical Pantone strip book, which is actually for teaching um, doctors and nurses, like how to identify disorders like really quickly. So when I show that, like I can, I can see people got you, but then I was like, blur your eyes and just look at the colours and they can kind of see how like that really is reflected in the palette. And they're quite like beautiful uh, ethereal colours because there's a translucency in a wound or a skin mm-hmm. that if you can remove what that is, you can see it for what it is in a different way, which is colour, translucency and light. So it's, it's wanting to hysterically bring forward the reality of like certain um, events, pains, experiences, and then also this kind of um, abstract space where you can rename it, where it's not that. And then a lot of that is embedded in the materials. And I love the fact that, for instance, latex for you is sort of, in a way, a kind of emblem of the complexities of the work, it seems to me, in the sense that latex has its historical references. You mentioned Ava Hesse there. But also it has a very direct connection to geopolitical issues and exploitation of people and then also a very directly personal reference to you in terms of the fact that your mother worked effectively child labor on a rubber plantation Mm -hmm. so it seems to me that sums up lots of stuff that's going on in the work would you say that's fair yeah I think it's nice to have that multiplicity inherent in the in the material itself so like when I am asked to talk about my biography I could just refer to the materials refer to the processes so we could change the context of anything at any point and because you can't say everything in one session it's going to be hard for us even to you know do this and get it you know succinct so if we go by any point if we just refer to material we can go into any direction and then of course this idea of a kind of personal subject matter underpinning pretty much everything Mm. it seems to me is crucial but it's interesting that you talk about a journey from the personal or the subjective to the universal Mm. are there sort of stopping points on that journey if you like so can one work occupy a point much further along that line and others be very much more personal or significant or would you say that you always have to achieve a certain universality in the work for it to be complete I'd say the latter I think because there's always this kind of I'm always asked to somehow through the question, what the question infers to kind of perform my identity. So that universalness, that kind of place that I want to get to is like a, you know, it's a resistance to that and it will keep it going through time. Because I I do sometimes feel myself coerced into that space and I can do it well, you know. I have lots of stories like everyone else does. (laughs) But it's just sometimes then after the fact, you don't feel right. But if the work can do that speaking for you, I think, you know, we're told through like our education how to speak and how to present yourself, how to frame yourself. And I think the reason why a lot of people make art is they don't want to speak. (laughs) I want the art to do that for me. When you say that you sometimes feel coerced, is that external pressures or internal pressures too? Do you, in a way, coerce yourself Mm. into that realm? I was initially meaning external, but actually you're right because there are certain things that I feel like, say, you know, as a Palestinian, I should be voicing more, for example. But as a painter, why the fuck should I? You know, so, yeah, both. (laughs) Mm. I'd like to talk about that a little bit more because 
one of the things I'm clear about is that, again, it's there as a kind of ever-present, that Palestinian heritage, in the sense that, for instance, those Israeli military code names that appear, these poetic names like Sea Breeze, I can see just over there in the studio, also in your brother's passport, which is an Egyptian passport, and the British maps of, of Palestine. I wonder how overtly you would say your work is political, is it political in the sense that everything is political or would you describe yourself as a political artist? I'd never describe myself in those terms. I used to hate the title painter, but I kind of like it because of, again, this universal thing. But again, living in this body in this time from my family, it, I can't not be. So, no, I'd not frame myself that way, I don't think so. I kind of really like the you know, self-identified with the collagist title. My shaman artist practising friend calls itself a collagist and I think that's the most that reflects things because it can be related philosophically you take fragments and then you reassemble you reassemble in different spaces and that could be psychically that could be you know materially or theoretically and of course it also in terms of performance because it seems to me with your performances that is very much a collaging process Mm. what role do the performances play in your practice because there's an almost interpretive role that they're playing in Akathisia a performance that you did at Lehman Morpin earlier this year there are performers who are almost interpreting the images that are being projected behind them. Tell me more about what you see performances doing, because you're going to be doing a performance when you open a show in London that we're, we're talking about. And I wonder what you see the role of that performance as being. Almost like a, it is almost like a kind of blessing for the work or a kind of interpretation at the same time. Yeah, that's a really good question, because how it started was because I couldn't paint or speak in a regular way because I, I suffered this mental breakdown, like a lot of people did in 2020. So it came out of an urgency. But how it functions now, which only I have the kind of privilege to see it retrospectively, is to kind of be in control of my frame. Because the moment this stuff goes out of the studio and into the gallery, I've lost control because, you know, the white cube, you know, the selling, all that. So the kind of performances are a way to kind of just, again, bring the interiority of my world to frame the way it is a blessing in that sense so I'll bless it with this birth and then do what you want after it and I don't want to see <laughs> so it's like really the the work that you're referring to akathisia which is um, something I suffered it's a kind of motoneuron kind of condition where you can't stop moving but there's a painful kind of like internal motor so it's like a manic body acute restlessness yeah, yeah yeah but it's painful it's not just like nervousness it actually hurts to sit still right. and like sometimes it looks like you're dancing sometimes it looks like you're just jittery and so this performance starts off with this like getting ready process before the studio and I have that energy anyway when I'm not ill just getting ready, this apprehension, this nervousness, this good nervousness. So I'm, I tried to kind of go into my own head and incite that kind of feeling before the work, before the work starts. So there's an internal with Earbuds soundtrack, which are like my favourite kind of like get ready tracks. And then what the audience here on the outside is completely different. It's my internal monologue, but in like um, in just fragmented, resutured ways. So what you're hearing and what I'm hearing is different. And there's a disjunct in, in that kind of movement so that's again trying to reframe the, 
the effect of the performance is to kind of be in control of my frame and show this kind of interior space and how this interiority is projected onto these screens, onto these skins, and how it comes from there, it comes from me. It doesn't come from the history or the canon or these other kind of frames. That's what it is. It's amazing because that sounds like effectively you're keeping a part of your practice, a kind of private experience that yeah, can't yeah, yeah, be yeah. shared. Yeah, but it's like it's very transparent, but then also there's a part that's impenetrable in a sense because you can't be in my body. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I don't know. I loved it. It was just like forced with it. <laughs> um, so, you know, being a kid in the 90s and early noughties, there's nothing. You, you, had, you just stared depressingly at things, you know, so you'd, you could just have an image that just embedded and etched into you. So above my bunk bed with my sister, I had a, a reproduction of a Dura Christ on the cross. Wow. So it's like a waxed kind of paper. And, like, I just stare at the knobbly knees of Christ for hours on end in my bed. You know, like, just, you know, preteen depression. <laughs> so it's just, like, that's the first notable image. And I love Jura now. Now I know I love Jura, but I didn't know then because that was just, you know, opposite my bed. That was there in the room. I didn't put it there. But the lines of Jura are really specific. You can just tell it's him whenever you see an image without knowing. There's almost a sort of miraculous nature in his drawing, isn't there? I mean, it just, you can't believe anybody's capable of drawing yeah, like that in a way. Yeah, but at the same time, there's a bodily kind of line. Like, it's very fleshed out line somehow. There's a certain abjection about yeah. those images, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, totally. And it's all like carving into something. So that itself is a, you know, embodied action. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Oh, I love Paul Tech. Mm. Um, I love that he couldn't like sit still with anything when something is doing good he had to move on to the next thing and it's also like this challenging itself but also going back to this place of like why you make art in the first place is like you know the wonder of a child and you just imagine this like chair for this child to view this work and that's I don't know I kind of like this idea of that you're making it for your, for your inner child yeah I noticed that on Instagram you posted one of his technological reliquaries works, which is just extraordinary, these vitrines with these beautiful, but again, abject but, and, and kind of disturbing forms made from beeswax, but they look like limbs or pieces of meat or whatever. And that strikes me as just being so bound up with what you're doing. And, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and once I had the awareness of like, because I didn't know what art was so that's why it's hard for me to answer this question I didn't, didn't know how to appreciate anything until I went to art school and I think a lot of artists they end up in art not because they love art like especially like because it's undiagnosed like learning difficulties so it's like they fail in everything else so they end up that's the only place that they're not failing <laughs> so um once I got into doing my BA at Westminster the first kind of stru- a sculptural piece that I made when I found out about all these artists I didn't know about Mike Kelly and about any of these like obvious Paul artist was to do a wax cast of my knee <laughs> you know again going back to the knees it's like the most arbitrary kind of like having no hooks to culture mm. so oh I know Paul Tech and I I know the knees of Christ so I'm gonna make a wax knee because that thing was in wax <laughs> and then like this amazing artist who was my tutor Des Hughes and I remember it's it really like yeah just very memorable because the kind of the thoughtfulness and the kind of intimacy of just like making this cast around my knee just like really stayed with me and like I put like sweeties and like candy rock as like the nerves and the bone and stuff and it's very satisfying to me to like have this cross-section of a body part 
one thing about Paul Tech is that is that he is one of those artists who was it seemed would have been an artist whatever happened you know yeah. in the sense that there was he was living know, yeah not yeah. a not a commercial entity not He's, at all you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah so he seems like a, a great moral example in a way to us yeah but in general like I found that looking at artists like because I'm so Civ like was just not good for me. It didn't help me because I'm pr- I'm processing my own shit, right? So I don't want to look at the end process or someone else's shit. So mm. I would like actively try not to. So if someone asked me that question, like who influences you in like that is an artist, would be more like the methodologies of people. So that's why I look at filmmakers and things like that, how they deal with fragments. So I really like Brian Geisen's cut method and how mm. he worked with Burroughs and just this way of like if you cut things up, like unconscious and then things can reassemble and then there's like things that come together by chance so looking at that kind of methodology rather than a particular artist or something i did want to talk about the wonderful helen chadwick because you've just had a show called in fleshings and i know that helen's a direct reference to you those in fleshings works are amazing pieces made again with meat and and these light bulbs and their sort of color transparencies beautiful photographic work she's such an extraordinary figure again an extraordinary example to so many artists but to what extent were those in Fleshing's works kind of physically in your mind or again was it a kind of moral kind of principle within those works that you were attempting to sort of tap into I just really loved that word and I wanted to use it but obviously I had to like cite my sources and again it's so interesting to talk about Des Hughes and like me first getting into like understanding what was good art and like because I had no reference previous to that it's kind of like you know when you the first person you date shows you like what good music is and like showed me mob deep and stuff and <laughs> gangstar so it's like that was from that time like Helen Chadwick all those British great artists Paul Tech that was all from like these first discoveries and like they're like the only ones that really have stuck because there's so much now and I, I you know as I say I, I'm not in touch with what's happening right right now so um yeah it's just like referring to her because I love that word and I like how words can encompass a feeling and I guess it's like this idea of the opposite of a symbolization process so the opposite of abstraction process you're going towards the flesh but it's still poetic so if you can achieve poesis through some kind of pain some kind of like meatiness that's what I'm interested in this fleshing thing so it's not really moral or in any sense of the word i was also doing it in a church so that made sense yeah it's a very biblical term and also sort of in fleshing out the church which is this very bare interior yeah. right so yeah, you're, yeah. you're making it's almost like there are sort of skin grafts across yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that church totally yeah. the last church i did something in like that has no crucifix and i was thinking like the biggest symbol that i guess any abstract practicing artists is, is fighting is the most powerful symbols across so it's like how can I compete with that and it's lucky I didn't have to <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating uh, yes as you say that you're engaging there with a kind of infleshing obviously in the, the making the spirit matter and mm-hmm. so on you do engage with religious themes in the work right um, yeah is, through is, the context only though yes so I was going to ask you does that come from a space of cultural inquiry as opposed to a space of belief Definitely the former. I mean, it's because I'm always very directly related to the site I'm making the work in. So if it's in a church, I'm going to acknowledge that. And I think, you know, Christianity like makes a mockery of what we're all doing because it's the most transformative in terms of symbol, imagery, thought and how that occupies the imagination. So it's like it's already doing the things I'm doing in a way. 
I want to ask about a reference to art history way further back, and that's to J.M.W. Turner and his landscape painting. Is that a Turner? That is a Turner. See, I I, I, I thought it would be, but I love the kind of diffuse nature of that. Yeah, yeah. And I was interested, you made a, a show which was called Still Evident Notes on Dreams, in which were fragmented, collaged, if you like, landscapes, which evoked those great Turnerian sunsets. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, did you see Turner then as a kind of, almost like a dreamscape, effectively? So all the references, including the Helen Chadwick, the Turner, are still kind of really, not arbitrary, but I remember it's like, it comes through chance, through what I'm experiencing in life at that moment. So I went to Helen Chadwick as a church, I was doing something in the church. And at that time, I think the National Gallery had invited me to do a talk about my favourite piece in the collection. So I had to, like, scramble to find something. It's like, oh, I like some fragment odd pieces. That's good. And I had seen some Turners, and I was thinking about it a lot and, like, the the diffuse nature of it and how how beautiful they were. So that kind of seeped into what I was doing at the time. I was doing a show in Miami and looking a lot at how these dreamscapes kind of were reflected in there. So... It can look like I'm a fan of Tana. It's also like something that just coincidentally kind of like intersected at that point. Let's talk about contemporary art. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? The two that I have in my very tiny collection <laughs> are like two artists I don't think are well known at all. So one was my friend who was like doing a residency here downstairs called Alice Walter. She's the writer and a shaman and she works with VHS. And another is called Keen Min Lee, who I did a two-person show with yes. in Korea. And his works are really about interiority more than my works could be. They're always him re-imaging his hallucinations from a past episode. I love that when he speaks, there's this impenetrability. When I ask what that shape is, he'll just reply with the same answer. Like, almost like, you can't get inside my head. And I don't want you to. <laughs> but the works are beautiful. I'll show you afterwards. There's one in my bedroom. Mm. But I wake up and, yeah, it just send me into this place. That's so nice. I mean, one of the things that I noticed looking at the images from that show is about how productive showing with other artists can be and how that inflects on your own work, you know, that, that sense in which your own work was animated in different ways than it might ordinarily totally. have been through, through showing with Totally. You. And I think he felt the same way. It's really, really such a privilege to do that because it's like when another artist that you admire likes your work back, that's more of a miracle than the person being in love with you when you're in love with them. So it's really such a, a miraculous thing. So if I, in fact, having these two artists is just more love than I can have in my life. Like if you're in love once, you're really fucking lucky. Twice, you're really, really, yeah, that's a miracle. That's <laughs> um, you also showed your work with Yi Bull, who's a, a great South Korean artist, a, a different generation, but interestingly engaged with things like cyborgs which I'd not really seen in your work and that was that seems to me another interesting combination because you know it's intensely engaged with the body but a sort of future image of the body a mechanized body and so on and it made me think again about you know because some of your work has what look like prostheses as part of it mm. and therefore I wondered if you thought about cyborgs and and the kind of post-human condition at all I think my first I don't know if you call them like dissertations in BA. 
or foundation. But I think my first um, essay was about this. It was about like mm. Orlan and Stellark, Cronenberg. Mm. And, and I think it's called The Obsolences of the Natural Human Body. <laughs> so yeah, I do. But it just doesn't figure in my work in the same way. I'm always thinking about that. How are interiorities figured by our technology? How like, so when people talk about like my influences, it's more like scrolling has more influence than any artist could have historically. Because mm. this act of scrolling, and I didn't have a phone to say however old I was, has changed how images will appear and, and be displayed in the work through a grid system. So in that way, in a really subtle kind of like removed ways, I'm always thinking about that, that interface and how that affects our thinking, how that affects our output, how that affects our body. It's very true about how we manipulate images on our phones when we're straightening them or cropping them we're presented with a grid yeah yeah, yeah. it hadn't occurred totally. to me that there was a sort of technological aspect with that mm. in your work. and just fitting this squishy amorphous material which is your actual lived body or your psyche into a schema is the most violent thing so that in itself is is about those themes i think Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 200 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are Cincinnati Art Museum in the US and Newlands House Museum in the UK. Among the other guides on Bloomberg Connects is Aberdeen Art Gallery, where Mandy Elsayer showed her work as part of the British Art Show 9. It's one of a host of Scottish institutions on the app, from the Borough Collection in Glasgow to DCA Dundee Contemporary Arts, the Pier Arts Centre in Orkney and Fruit Market and Jupiter Artland in Edinburgh. Download the app and you'll find the guide to Jupiter Artland has in-depth features on the permanent collection shown across the 100-acre park, including works by former guests on a brush with Philida Barlow, Pablo Bronstein and Cornelia Parker. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We're in your studio now, so I can see what you've got pinned to your studio wall. Do you want to explain it a bit to me? Because it's fascinating. So there's this kind of transparency that I'm always going for, like that flesh that's been in underwater mm. has when it's rotting. So even though this looks really childlike, and it is, because I think my, my special corner is to evoke, again, the warmth that you have as a kid and the, and the belief that you're going to a play state. So that's really important. So that light has that for me. But also trying to find this. This kind of skin-like quality. So uh, what I have pinned to the wall are like any objects that have that kind of layering in them. Like that kind of girl's top has this kind of cross-hatching. Tiny child's top. Yeah, yeah, that has like neon yellow, like different kind of blues and greens. But they're layered on top of each other in a specific way. And then reference material from like packaging and porn of just different parts of the body. Mm. Like an anatomy chart corner. And then there's this intriguing political poster that support the Armagh woman, oh, yeah. and which relates to the sort of struggle for political status for Republican women in the 1980s. But I've seen in your work that you've made reference to the dirty protests of May's prisoners and so on. So does that relate to that, that sort of whole period of political violence and political tension in, in Northern Ireland? Totally. But it's in that corner because of that yellow there. That's oh, on the paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this idea of smearing... And then this universal that we're talking about, painting, smearing this act, this gesture, and how that act can take it from this particular group of people in time to a 
transcendent place. And Richard Hamilton did a piece in that. Is a, you know, piece, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. These are all grounding things, you know. So when I'm stuck, I can just come back to them because I can't. I don't have the attention span to read and like to go into books and stuff. So if I can just do that visually. Yeah. And you've got, as you say, you pointed out the fact you've got your work right next to them. Would you actually be making, like, so go into this corner, look at these things and then immediately work right next to it? I don't think it's like even that conscious. It's just like that's where I will top up my vodka. So it's like I'm not looking, looking in that way. I think you have to not look in a conscious way. It's just it's just around you. Um, and my work is only there because I am just don't like white space. <laughs> <laughs> Which museum or gallery do you visit the most? To be honest, I don't really go out much <laughs> or get to see. So if a friend drags me, it'll be wherever the friend wants to go, which is often the Barbican, the usual suspects of day, Camden Art Centre. Mm -hmm. But really, if I were to go on my own, I wouldn't go. <laughs> when you say you wouldn't go, you, is it you're so immersed in the studio, you mean? I'm so immersed in the studio and if anything, I would go and just like, have a life and see my friends and like a lot of my friends are not in the art world mm. so I'd rather go and listen like you know go out for a, to a music gig than to a gallery but if that friend is in the art world somehow then I love that excuse to go on like an art date but there isn't any particular ones that I go to. Uh, which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Throughout my um, art education which is like BA, MA, like foundation I don't even know the Iraq war was happening and just thinking a lot about how images came out of that and how that affected the way I was forming because I was gaining this new language that I didn't have before you know and how that affected and shaped that language this ever presence of like you know this Adam Curtis was really big in that mm -hmm. you know when I was in school and thinking about this kind of like um menacing presence that you couldn't really see but you felt so I would say that, if anything, because then it ended 2011 and that's when I graduated from my master's in the Royal College. Mm -hmm. So it was just there throughout. And thinking about, you know, how, you know, the Vietnam War was televised from 65 to 75, how that must have affected artists then, that they had these images and it was like, you know, televised throughout and they knew not to make that mistake again. But then we had leaked images, which is a different kind of psychical effect, you know, this kind of more hidden clandestine darkness it's a different feeling that I gave and a different kind of output. Right. So would you say that it was a sort of intellectual firmament that you had there or more personal? Yeah, it's a felt thing. It's a felt thing. And it gave me this impulse, this kind of hysterical impulse to want to, because you couldn't see it, because it wasn't talked about in the right way, because it wasn't televised in the way it was back then. And there was leaked stuff. It gave me this hysterical energy. So like always wanting to express or show or figure or include those kind of like clandestine parts or marginalized kind of parts of information. I wanted to ask you about a particular experience that you had that it seems to me was utterly extraordinary, which is going to Bogota and spending time in morgues with cadavers and so on. Firstly, how did that come about? And tell me what effect that had on you, because it's obviously directly infected the work. You know? Yeah, infected for yeah. sure. Now that piece that I made out that is cursed... And it's probably rightly so. That's what Alice has told me, my shaman friend. It started because I was doing a two-person show in Bogota with a gallery. 
we were supposed to do a residency. So I was living with this other artist, Carmen Ogati, who's an amazing artist. And she was having a great time. Like, she, her research project was going well. She got there before me. She's doing something with, like, um, trade routes and avocados. And I was like, I am not feeling this residency. And I, got re- I was really depressed, but I was also in a shitty relationship at the time. So I didn't know I was depressed, you know. Sometimes there's a delay. <laughs> so I was just sleeping all day and not being active in my residency time and feeling like this is not my residency experience. I need to make my own residency. Um, so even though we were given this beautiful flat and this flat had, like, all these artefacts, like you know, stolen from graves and stuff. And, like, anyone who's been to Bogota, you'll see the class system is very divided. Just, you know, you, you see the help and you see, you know, the rich people. Mm-hmm. And it's racially divided in that way too. There is no, you know, spectrum. So I think, you know, that layer also added to, like, how can I make work in these conditions with this filtering through me? So then I went to another part of Colombia and I thought, okay, if I'm going to feel this feeling, like we talked about in the, the rock war situation this feeling this amorphous darkness I'd rather go to the thing and that's what I do like as a strategy I realized later on in my life that I often lean into the the terror as a way to assuage the anxiety so I said okay I'm just going to follow around the death in this village in the morgues because someone told me that you know it's it's quite accessible you don't need all these permits because normally in Europe if you want to do life studies with the dead you have to go through these institutions you have to be a you know a training surgeon or an anatomical artist there's just so much you know paperwork so this way I could just go directly whoever died I'd follow it through there's lots of feminicide in that village and um, I'd always miss the bodies though so it's like someone's died come and then the body would move and go to the undertaker and I finally got some bodies and I thought I'd be doing this life drawing thing, which is I, I started in a Royal College, actually, with Eleanor Crook, who's an incredible sculptor. She does these um, wax models for, like, the Gordon Museum and all these renowned places. So I thought I'd, it'd be a similar thing. I'd just draw profusely, because it's the best way that you can understand abstraction is you come really close to a rotting piece of flesh. Because the closer you look, the more you think you can understand, the more you think you're given, the less you understand, the stranger things look. And its over-literalness becomes a type of abstraction. So that's what the place I wanted to go to. This body came out, is getting ready to be put into, you know, the funeral ceremony. So all the innards had to be taken out. As a young man, around 18, two men that had been violently killed in kind of some gang war. And then when I went in, the smell of the formaldehyde running through the tank just made me feel really sick. There's no way I could draw. So I just, like, filming. And now I know, you know, respect for the dead and all the spiritual knowledge I have now to not do that <laughs> or to get some permission. It's almost like the screen of the phone was a, a filter for me, for my experience. That's why. That's why that happened. So it's like if I put this in front of me, then I'm filtering it through this technology and not experiencing the, the death of it. This death is in the air. Whoever's smelt death, it's a real thing. But every time I try to show this video, things happen where it's not shown, like in Beirut for Homeworks in 2019, I believe. It's the first day of the revolution. There was a fire around the, <laughs> the museum. Right. So no one could come to the opening. And when they brought the second body out, I knew, I don't know why, in my gut, I knew that I could not document this body. There's something going on with that body that I couldn't. As like an indigenous Indian, I remember. And yeah, being that close to death, 
did something else, which actually really helped in a way in terms of humbling you. And I know there's this kind of like fucked up ethics that artists have because they, whatever pain they see and behold, they have their own ethic system. It's like, we all capture this thing. My friend who's downstairs said that his dog died and he buried him in this little hole and it was all curled up in a hole and he wanted to take a picture of him and the friend like, you know, was really upset that he would do that when he's suffering. But that that's what an artist does, right? They like can see the beauty despite of and then they'll do that. Like Sophie Carl's a good example mm. of that. I bet she'd be a really shit friend. Like, cause she's <laughs> mining like all these painful experiences of others as her work. And like, so in that way, it taught me a lot that the expanse of this feeling and what that could mean and how it can be translated does not have to be in an artwork. Right. <laughs> so in that artwork was, is actually, it's a video piece in which you pair the images from the morgue with sort of close-ups of Gerhard Richter and Mark Rothko's abstract. Yeah, painting. and they were reflecting the palettes in each case. So they kind of look like similar images. And I guess it's, it's talking about, like, where are you coming from on the spectrum? How are you experiencing visual culture? Mm-hmm. Because, like, I wouldn't be able to quickly identify an ad Reinhardt. I wouldn't know. So, like, in the Google results, it was just everything that looked like each other. So some were fake Richter's. And, some, and they were just reflecting the clothing that this young man had when they were redressing him for the funeral, right. um, which were actually really bright, kind of lurid colours, right. which appear sometimes in Richter's work. <laughs> so are you now resigned to never showing that work, or do you no, feel there is a space for showing no, it? No, I think under the right conditions, the right blessings, it would work. Intriguing. <laughs> which writers or poets do you return to? As I mentioned earlier, I like, have no um, capacity to like, sit still. And read so audible if anything audible is very good to send me to sleep adam phillips who's like a essayist psychoanalyst Freud, Freud specialist and so on yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. winnicott and he looks mm. a lot at like writers and poets like yeah. t.s Eliot and things but he, he writes beautifully and like another one is darian leader both of them talk similarly and like the way they speak is so meandering and beautiful and well-paced that because this isn't audible, they send me to sleep. Okay. It's better than Alan Watts. You know? <laughs> so you're getting something, but there's no stop. Where, so your brain is not like finding a hierarchy of, of meaning. It's just like it's flowing with their lovely voice. It's interesting though, because Phillips is, it seems to me, instructive in terms of the way he relates to art in the sense that he regards psychoanalysis as closer to poetry than science in some ways. And that I seems agree. to me very instructive in terms of the yeah, way Yeah, I mean, work. it's interpretation. It's not a science. Which is funny because Freud really wanted to be legitimized through science, which is, again, why um, I think I'm really influenced by the, his room in, in mm. Hampstead Heath for this show that we're, that's coming up called yeah. Interiors. And the show you've just done at Tishi too, yeah. is that right? So you're, so you're directly working with Freud's, the space, mm-hmm. almost like the culture around Freud, almost yeah, more, yeah, than, yeah. more than Freud's writing. Yeah, and him trying to legitimize himself in a time and space that he had to really, you know, fight for that. He had to carve his own space out, which is really, you know, a punk thing to do to bring all these things together and make it legit, you know. And now it's, like, seeped into pop culture in a way that others don't rival. Mm. But another writer that I do love, but her book actually is in the exhibition in the Tiki Foundation, Teresa Hak-Yong-Cha. Do you know a poet, incredible Korean poet, that died way too early but her writing, she was like trilingual. So her writing is a lot about displacement and 
a loss in the body though like her writing so visceral like it evokes the body in a way that I can relate to because I actually don't like poetry like it's too removed like I always talk about the violence of like poesis like some people can't afford that because they're so close to the terror like so if you're in in Gaza like I can't be reading T.S. Eliot like some people can and that will help them but I can't I need to like I need the rotting flesh to be acknowledged, the dead body to be acknowledged, and her writing, the only kind of writer that I know that does that, apart from, like, Cormac McCarthy. But as I say, I don't have enough, so I'll be lying to say I do read them, I admire them, and sometimes I'll go in and, like, find a sentence. Right. And there's also this reference to Adriana Cavavero in your work, who wrote Horrorism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Clearly you read a bit of theory because that's infusing in the work, you know, taking ideas from theory at least and, yeah. and, and, and translating them into visual art. Yeah. Can you explain how that affects the work? And horrorism, it seems to me, is very pertinent to so many of your themes. When I was in the Royal College and studying painting, which is a weird thing to study painting, I was really kind of alienated because I couldn't find any hooks to, like, I couldn't see myself modelled or historically or otherwise or with my peers even. So I kind of enrolled myself into critical theory summer school. So theory does go a lot through the work, even though I have a low attention span. I can do it through podcasts and stuff. So, yeah, I would say I'm a Lacanian. And a lot of the podcasts and people and theories have that running through it. So visual cultures and how they're influenced by by these theories. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? It's kind of like all my favourite people, I don't remember their names, which is terrible, (laughs) like filmmakers and stuff. I'll I'll be able to say the film. It's the same thing. So I, I kind of order my playlist by time because I have a really long shift from nine o'clock at night to like nine in the morning I'll be like winding down so it's long 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 shift so there needs to be ebbs and flows so they're based on their bpm so like Ah. I'll start off maybe with something like warm and like it'll go into dance hall and then it'll go into like if I'm concentrating I'll do like low-key techno or something so it's more about the um the bpm and the flow state that I want to go into and does it matter whether that music has lyrics, whether it has sort of text, as it were? Oh, yeah, it totally matters. So for my warming up, like just starting, you want to get into the child corner, which is like the child corner in the head is basically like warm teenage. So it's like all the things that you had growing up. So like mine's like old school garage. And like one of my friends said that it's crimes against music. But like you don't pick what you grew up with. And I fucking love it. So so it's like all kind of like nostalgic stuff would be the warm up, getting ready. And then for flow states, that would be specific BPMs. But I'm not that like scientific with it. I'll just know. I'll know feel. And I have like, you know, 20 playlists for different feels. That's really interesting. What other media influence your work? Everything in the kind of like populist outputs, the Netflix, Instagram, the free tabloids, anything that comes into our body through these channels because you know I don't think anyone has TVs anymore so all these forms and what forms they take and how they come into us affects what I make I'd say 
I was interested by your choice because obviously you're most famous for using Financial Times because of this kind of fleshy tone and also its sort of place in society in terms of economics and everything else. And perceived universality of the market. That's right. Mm. But actually you do use quite a broad range of media. In a way, Financial Times has a particular role, but there are all sorts of other headlines that appear in the work and also sort of ads from magazines and so on. How organised is that kind of process in terms of sifting, in terms of finding the right headlines to pick up on and so on? It's not. <laughs> it's like, as you can see, it's quite a, like a mess. And, you know, people say it's an organized mess. No, it's just a mess. <laughs> um, so I think it's important because if you leave the floor as a spread, then things can come in by chance. I'm not thinking too much. And it's like what's ever on top of the pile. That's the system. And that sort of ability to collage them sort of allows you to free associate. So yeah. you can create new meanings in, yeah. in the most kind of severely sort of trite headline yeah, that you might yeah, find yeah. in a horrible paper like yeah. The Sun or something. No, the more trite, the better. Like the New York Post, is it? Has a similar, mm. that has their brand of like the American version of The Sun. But I love the economy of it. You know, it's like the dumb joke. There's a certain cleverness in that. Right. You know, it has a British kind of flavour. And then film, obviously, is a massively important... And in fact, I was really intrigued to read that a tutor once said to you that the way that you compose your paintings was more akin to somebody making movies than it is to composing a painting. And they actually hurt me because they said I wasn't a painter. (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm going to be a painter. (laughs) (laughs) They meant more that I'm always, like, manipulating and, and... putting together and suturing things like uh, and sequence is a really important thing and I think that's true the seriality rather than sequence so there always has to be a row of grids or this kind of idea about time so sound is always there so I really see actually you know he prophesies I'm going more towards that but if I were to make a film it wouldn't be like a feature length or something it'd be like an epileptic fit more like a brackage type thing more like um a shaky Right, yeah, sort of experimental films as opposed to feature films, yeah. Yeah. But you're interested particularly in David Cronenberg, aren't you? And I wanted to pick up on, you know, like, for instance, again, on Instagram, you you posted recently an image of The Brood, which is this extraordinary film from 79, I think, in which um, Samantha Egger plays the lead character and and she gives birth to a baby outside her body. And I know you posted that image and it's typical Cronenberg, but it also made me think about, you know, I'd mentioned prostheses earlier on the work and the way that the work seems to have a sort of extended role beyond the kind of space of the canvas. Yeah. Um, And who did Sliver? Was it him as well? I don't know. (laughs) Because I love that. And I remember someone talking about that in relation to AIDS crisis, but Cronenberg made that film when he was going through a divorce. And I think expressing this like this experience in that way is exactly something I relate to (laughs) like I'm an oversharer so you see everything everything's here you don't even need to have like a a shrink session with me like you could actually conduct this whole interview just by looking at stuff you could answer the questions yourself because I'm so transparent in terms of Cronenberg's influence was this something that you experienced as a young person? Because I know, for instance, when I saw The Fly, when I was a Oh teenager, my God, The Fly was the thing, yeah. It was a thing for so many people and aliens when they come bursting through the stomach. It's like, I'm never going to get pregnant. <laughs> like, why would... Kids should not watch that. Because they're just primal resonances in the body, aren't they? Um, so The Fly was a huge one. How he was, like, mutating. And then, like, you know, living with you know, chronic illness in a family. You know things are going to just get worse. And having that feeling impending something is the worst, worse than straight death. And in a way, would you say that you're still working through some of that material oh, as in the studio? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Till I die. 
yeah yeah and I think like this thing again of leaning in going to the death is a, is a kind of way to like deal with that like that's like my strategy instead of like it being amorphous and like creepy is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual yeah it'd be just practical boring things like to clean my body up from the night before's alcohol so like try and be really healthy on the in-between alternate days so lots of greens maybe go for a run like shower culture is huge in malaysia maybe have two showers (laughs) and the skincare just because it just gives me time away because if i was to leave myself without these rituals i'd just be not knowing when to stop working you know which is very normal for an artist so these things just force me time away and what about hoarding coming into this room this studio which is a very light space clearly a very painting space there's a kind of room of stuff quite ordered I would say even even among (laughs) the chaos you know that's more ordered than this yeah yeah (laughs) so tell us about that so you accumulate material and how compulsive or random is that and and to what extent is it an orderly or kind of collecting activity Mm. oh yeah that definitely is a practice and I think I've learned to make it more of a ordered thing through grouping them like for like and I found out recently that's a thing that ADHD people do they call it the piling system so things that look the same so there's no kind of like intellectual reasoning it just be things that look the same so things that have a similar texture there's a corner for like hair there's a corner for like um, paper ephemera there's a corner for like squidgy stuff that don't have names and then it's like it's like an object palette so then in these little boxes that are all piled on top of each other I can pull from that if I need a certain frequency of object. And tell me about being in the space where you're composing those kind of table pieces. Will you literally have a surface and then you'll just pull from those collections, as it were, and make a kind of form of composition yeah. or anti-composition? Yeah, so there's no tables. It'll be like this. So how I'd do it is, like, it would be pulling from those boxes and then spreading on the floor, like I normally do. So I'm making a mess. I'm getting paid to be an adult child just spreading as my mum would call me just spreading everywhere and then this table vitrine boundary is like the end of a session so it's a punctuation device to stop the spread and give the spread meaning so that's like one hour of my time or that's like a feeling or that's an event in a table so I think my practice is just giving myself like boundaries and you've used this term merginess mm-hmm. or merging to, mm-hmm. to describe that activity as well. Which I like that because it's describing an action, but it feels less gestural somehow. It feels more like an internal process, a mental process. Totally. And like, I like that one of my friends has said that describing his daughter doing some creative thing. And I said, oh, like, is she making art? I goes, no, she's just making a mess. And I was like, what is more liberating than that? just allowing yourself to, to make a mess. But also this merginess is a, is a kind of state that's not a good state for me. So there's a point in the, in the kind of studio where things just look like one big mess, one big vomit. I have a vomit phobia. So like I don't like it when things merge together into a big amorphous blob. So sometimes when I'm starting a painting, it'll look like that because it's not formed yet. It's not coalesced into something. And also in a kind of like 
a mental breakdown, this merginess or the anxiety will start with a feeling of merginess. Like I feel like I'm merging to my surroundings into the other. I don't know where I stop, where they begin. It's a horrible feeling, like my body either like exploding or like contracting and I don't know where it starts from. And actually I found out from the shaman friend, Alice, that merginess is a tenet of shamanism. Like in order to make um, contact with the spirits, you need to be able to have loose boundaries that these things which we see in like contemporary therapy culture as bad which is loose boundaries is good in certain things like being an artist a painter that's a good thing so you can like be paint and then you can reform so merginess has a really particular meaning for me and my my reality if you could live with just one work of art what would it be i have it in my bedroom it's a kinman lee painting we talked earlier about how he is imaging his hallucinations but it's it's really beautiful it's really um otherworldly but if if anything and like I thought about this because my other studio had this little square window and it was like you know because when you have warehouse you have these squares so these kind of fake Tyrells (laughs) something I could live with I because I actually don't like stuff I don't like owning more stuff than the shit that I have so I wouldn't be inclined to live with a work of art I'd have one like a window in my ceiling (laughs) and lastly what is art for it has to not be for anything in order for it to be related to love and the transcendent i'd say for nothing mandy thank you so much thank you so much ben this was good it was fun Mandy Elsayer, Interiors, is at Tadeus Ropak in London from the 1st to the 30th of September. Mandy Elsayer, In Session, is at the Tishi Ocean Foundation in Zurich until the 30th of November. The book, The Makeshift Body, Mandy Elsayer, is published by Black Dog Publishing in September and priced £29.95 or $39.95. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues, which is back in September. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Threads. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack. Thanks to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Mandy Elsay. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. Brushwith is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.